Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about the effects of sleep deprivation. If you have a baby in your life, it's a given that you're not getting enough sleep. But how does that deprivation affect your mind, body, and mood? How does it relate to weight gain? Can your body adapt to the lack of sleep? Do micro naps help or hinder? What about regular naps? Dr. Kimberly Fenn has answers. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Megan Othling, a birth doula in Albuquerque who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womanofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be and Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be. As always, thank you so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. I appreciate your comments, your requests, and of course, your reviews, since those help get the show in front of even more parents, as I tell you every week. So if you enjoy what you hear, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review in iTunes, even if that's not how you usually listen to the show, because it really does help. Now, most of the listeners of this show are mighty parents-to-be, but I also know that there are quite a bunch of mighty doulas and childbirth educators and birth professionals who also join us week after week. And so if you are a birth professional close to Rochester, New York, I have a fabulous birthday treat for you. I am doing a special advanced doula workshop on June 24th to talk about rethinking prenatals to support physiology and promote birth ownership. Yes, in this workshop, we'll be exploring a new birth model that stops focusing on stages and stations and centimeters. This model is going to help birthing couples really understand what they can be doing now during pregnancy to make labor flow and really own their births. A model where they choose to go deeper into, pro into the process instead of being lured out of it by the medical going-ons around them. There's so much good stuff in this workshop. All right, go to birthful.com slash workshop to learn more. Space is limited, so don't miss out. Go register at birthful.com slash workshop. So then getting on with today's show, my guest is sleep expert, Dr. Kimberly Fenn. Welcome, Kim. It is so nice to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. So sleep <laughs> deprivation, huh? <laughs> <laughs> something that's probably near and dear to um, many of your listeners' hearts. Yes, it's either they're in it or it's in their very close near future, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, before we tackle, you know, the, the effects of sleep deprivation um, and go deeper into that, can we just briefly talk about the importance of sleep, like why we should pay attention and and and. and prioritize our sleep, regardless of where we're pregnant or not, or have new kids, you know, babies, toddlers, whatever it is, wherever we are in life, if we're dads, like, why should we prioritize our sleep? I think that's an excellent question. Um, and I think one that isn't really asked enough, um, particularly in today's really fast paced culture. Um, I, I think that the one thing that people um, sometimes fail to really think about is that sleep is just like any other physiological system, right? So if you can imagine thinking about um, skimping out on food, for example, you would never do that. You would never think, well, I don't need to eat for the next couple days because I'm really busy with this job, right? At some point, you have to eat or your body's going to break down. Um, so sleep is critical to optimal functioning, um, to optimal, excuse me, op optimal functioning of both um, your body, your physiological state, and your brain. And I think that when we talk a little bit about the effects of sleep deprivation, it'll become more and more apparent um, all the damage we can do by not prioritizing sleep. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, sorry. And, and I think this is really important, you know, not just obviously for adults, but even more so in a lot of ways um, for children and, and infants, of course, as well. 
Well, and I find that's like the missing component right now that we we hear a lot in our day to day lives and recommendations of like how important good nutrition is for you and eat organic and make sure, you know, pay attention to the toxins around in your life and and also exercise and make sure your body is fit and you keep moving and the importance of that. And sleep kind of just goes crickets, right? <laughs> It's true. I don't know why that is, actually. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And there is, you know, a huge movement for, you know, better health in the in society. And, you know, we've had, um, you know, all these movements for better, like you said, nutrition, particularly in children. Um, but you're right. No one is, you know, out there really um, campaigning for sleep. And I don't know why that is. I think the only one is that started that, and hopefully that'll gain more more, more momentum. Is uh, Ariana Huffington with her thing yeah. about sleep and meditation and, and linking those things together? So, yeah, let's yeah, let's be right. on that bandwagon of all of us saying, because yeah. I love <laughs> sleep. So the more we can focus on that, absolutely. <laughs> I know it's like it, it, it's almost seen. I think in a lot of ways, um, as a luxury. Right. Sleep is a luxury that, you know, the working people who, you know, are working hard or have, you know, fancy jobs maybe are not privy to. But but we need to make the time for it. Yeah, I know. Totally agreed. So we've established, you know, get that message out there. You need to sleep and sleep well, people. So then life throws us this curveball of bringing (laughs) newborns into the world that really put a damper on your sleep habits um before we go into i just realized before we go into the the effects of sleep deprivation which i have tons of questions about would you tell our listeners like who you are and why (laughs) you're a good person to talk about this (laughs) absolutely Uh, my name is kimberly fenn i'm an associate professor in the cognition and cognitive neuroscience program at michigan state university in the department of psychology Um, so i was trained in cognitive neuroscience and my work um, looks specifically at how a period of sleep or a period of sleep deprivation affects learning and memory and memory consolidation which is beautiful for this topic that we're talking about today. Um, and you've, like, on purpose made people be sleep-deprived and to see what, what that happens. Um, before we started recording, we were talking about the fact, though, that most of the studies done are done on, you know, healthy, usually, I guess, college-age people, um, as as to serve as, you know, little lab rats for you. But... <laughs> What, there's not much there to f- specific studies on, on on new moms and new dads and that sort of sleep deprivation that comes from being in the postpartum period. That's that's correct. Yes, um, you know, uh, it is maybe a weakness to a, a lot of bodies of literature, particularly psychology, that we do tend to rely on college students um, as our research subjects. Um, it's primarily um, because we have you know, greater access to them, um, and it's a lot easier to recruit them, um, particularly when you're asking people to stay awake for a night, for example. Um, so there is less work in, um, in an older sample. By older, I don't mean older adults, but um, you know, older than college age, so college graduates. Um, but I do think that a lot of the research um, that's been done on college students um, will directly apply to the life of a, a new mother or a new father. Um, so a lot of the work that's been done looks at um, sleep restriction. So um, we draw a distinction between sleep deprivation and sleep restriction. So sleep deprivation would be spending an entire day or more awake, right? So being deprived, completely deprived of sleep for a full day. And, and that's, I think, fairly rare um, in society. However, sleep restriction tends to be quite common. So in sleep restriction, we restrict the amount of sleep that participants are able to receive per night. Um, and it can be anywhere from four to six hours. Um, so six hours you know, seems pretty close to the recommended seven to nine, um, but we see deficits after multiple nights of only six hours of sleep. So in these sleep restriction studies, we have participants come into the lab and sleep, you know, depending on the study, anywhere from, you know, three to seven days, we'll say, at this lower amount of sleep. And, and that's probably a little bit more related to what a new mother or new father um, endures, at least in the, the early months um, of the, um, the child's life. Yeah, 
And I think it's this is a fantastic starting point. And I would be so bold as to say that whatever you know, what results you've been seeing, that I think moms, new moms and dads probably are going through way longer sleep restrictions, you know, than three to seven yeah. days, right? And That's it's absolutely a, true, right? Right. So in the, it, the effects are probably even worse for them because you're sustaining that for a longer period, or maybe the effects are stronger. Um, and also the fact that you're not getting these three or 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 four, five, six hours of sleep in a row, like. I would right. be curious to maybe for your next research, you can wake them up like every two to three hours and then wake them up again and wake them up again and, right. and see what that shows. But um, yeah, but so specifically to what you do, what you have researched, what are the effects of sleep deprivation that you've seen? And I'm, I'm curious to know short term what those might be. And then if you have information about long term, um, and I guess sleep restriction, you've clarified that sleep restriction, um, what the effects are short term and long term. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about some other people's research, not not just my Sure. Own. Yeah. Um, so, and I want to go back to one thing you said, because I think you brought up a really, really good point, which is that, you know, a lot of these new parents have, you know, not just, you know, three days or one week, <laughs> unfortunately, of a restricted sleep, but, you know, months, you know, often. And, and the, the dominant sort of theory in the field is that, you know, the longer you go with lower amounts of sleep, the more you build up what's called sleep debt, right? So you've you know, you've accumulated, excuse me, accumulated, you know, hours and hours of lost sleep across the week, right? So imagine if you sleep, we'll say four hours a night for one week, um, then we would say that you have a sleep debt of really about 28 hours, right? Yeah, <laughs> checking my math. Um, so, so I think that the question of, of parents is, is a really interesting one because, um, you know, what they could be doing is accumulating all of the sleep debt. And, and the downstream effects are, you know, are not well known, well known because, you know, we would never do a research study of, you know, four months of sleep restriction. Um, but what I will say is that overall across, you know, lots and lots of studies, um, there are several key findings. So if we look first at the cognitive effects of sleep deprivation or sleep restriction, we find that um, attentional abilities go down, working memory abilities decline, uh, short-term memory ability declines, um, your ability to form new long-term memories um, goes down. So most aspects of cognition are impaired under conditions of sleep deprivation or sleep restriction. The extent to which each one goes down varies a little bit on task and that sort of thing. Um, but this is also accompanied um, or can be explained um, by very different changes in neural function under conditions of sleep deprivation. I'm not sure if anyone really cares about that, so I'll leave that there. And if you well, want to I talk was going to say, like, to yeah, no, so is there a specific change in neural function? Like, is it, can you condense that into something? Or if it's a long, if, if it's a yeah, whole hour, I think, then I think, we'll not talk yeah. about it. <laughs> I think I can give you sort of two bullet points. So in general, um, cognitive performance declines. And typically when you see reduced performance, what you see is lower activity in task-relevant areas. So this has been shown um, um, very strongly in um, your frontal lobe, which of course is the area of your brain that's really important for executive function, strategy planning, and that sort of thing. Um, and also in your parietal lobe, which is important for working memory processing. So um, on average, performance goes down, and typically when it goes down, you see a reduction in activation, meaning your body just, or I'm sorry, your brain maybe just, you can think of it as not, it's not able to rise to the challenge that you're giving it. Um, and then in some rare cases, what you see is that performance does not go down with sleep deprivation. But if you look at the neural function underlying the sustained performance, what you see is that the brain is working even harder than a well-slept person. So um, you may imagine a situation in which you have a really important task to do someday. Maybe you're giving a presentation at work um, or something like that in front of your whole company. Um, and so maybe you're able to do that. You're able to do a really good job, um, just as good as you would have done if you had a full night's sleep. But what you might find is that you were completely exhausted afterwards because your, your brain is working extra, extra hard just to maintain that same level of performance. 
Right. So either you're not going to be able to do it as well as you would otherwise if you were if you'd gotten some proper sleep or it's going to really take all you've got to get through it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well stated. (laughs) Yeah. No, which is I mean, it's like so that both things are make it day in and day out a lot harder to sustain because if you look at what new moms are going through and new new parents um, are going through they have suddenly their life got a whole level of new challenge and tasks to do right taking care of this new baby so there's way like it's not your to-do list doubled and then your sleep if you're lucky was cut in half oh my goodness <laughs> you're not making a case for becoming a parent. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> There's so many good things about it, but that's not one of it. So, yeah. so and I and I do at the end of this, I do want us to get you know talk about things parents can do to try to maximize that that sleep they're getting. But you, I wanted to go back to this concept of sleep depth, which we've mm-hmm. obviously heard about. And my question was, can you, so like sleep depth, can you actually fill up your tank and, and, and reduce that depth? Or is it something yeah. that continuously accumulates? That is such an interesting question. And um, I don't really have an answer for you. We don't have a scientific answer. I, I can tell you what people think and sort of um, how people react to sleep debt. So, um the vast amount of researchers believe that you cannot repay the debt, right? That you're doing essentially harm to your body, you know, every time you accumulate, accumulate sleep loss, excuse me. Um, however, if you look at people's habitual sleep habits, so the average American sleep habits, right? Um, on average, people get less sleep during the week than they do during the weekends, so you can imagine, you know, particularly, you know, a parent, for example, you know, they have to come home and maybe they have to take their children to, you know, soccer or dance, and then they have to cook dinner um, and get them ready for bed. Excuse me. So the parent themselves isn't going to bed till pretty late, and they have to wake up early in the morning to, you know, get their child ready for school before they go off to work. So on average, um, the average American now only gets about 6.1 hours of sleep per night on the weekdays. Um, but then what you see is that they try to make up for it on the weekend. So um, that number goes up to, I think it's like 7.9 hours um, per night on the weekend. Now, actually testing whether or not this helps is, is a little bit tricky to do, and so we don't have any you know, scientific evidence that that, that does help. Um, but I think that you know, for the new parents or or older parents, um, I think that if you get the opportunity to sleep more, you always should take it um, if you've accumulated some sleep debt. And um, there's an easy way to test <laughs> if you have, um, and that is to simply not set an alarm. So, um, for example, if you normally go to bed at midnight um, and you normally wake up at 6, um, if you just don't set your alarm one night and you go to bed at your normal time, if you wake up at 6, then Probably all you need is six hours. But if you find that you sleep till eight, that suggests that you're carrying around some level of sleep debt. Now, what about, I'm going to throw a wrench in, in that, <laughs> in those works. What about the the strength of your own circadian rhythms? Because what I find is if I wake up every single day at 6 a.m., Saturday, 6 a.m. is going to come around and I am going to wake up. But if I manage to go back to sleep, then I'll coast until eight. <laughs> yes, that that is a very interesting question. Um, if that's the case, it may that may suggest that you're a more morning oriented person. And so, what you might want to do then is adjust your bedtime a little earlier, if you can do that. Mm. It, no. It's harder to do that. Um, most people, their endogenous circadian rhythm. So they're they're, they're in case you're. Um, listeners don't know, your circadian rhythm is your 24-hour biological cycle. Um, Just about, if not every cell in your body has some rhythmicity that, you know, fluctuates on a 24-hour basis. Um, Now, most people, their 24-hour rhythm isn't precisely 24 hours. It's a little bit more than 24 hours, so it's a little longer, which is why it's typically easier to sleep in later than to go to bed earlier. (laughs) 
Ah, another way to think of it is it's easier to fly to California um, than to fly the other way. So yeah, westward travel is a lot easier than eastward. No, but that because of the way you shift your clock. <laughs> Absolutely, no, that makes sense. Now here's the thing, though. Now I, I like personally, I <laughs> there's all these things about newborn sleep that you don't know that I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> See, here's here's what I found personally. Like I understand if I'm never having an alarm clock and I let it go, depending on how much sleep I get, seven seven p.m. seven a.m. is like my wake up. That's where my body yeah. feels happy and my circadian rhythm and great, all beautiful. Now, parents like newborns have a hard time and, and you probably know this like don't really have a, a, a cyclical production of melatonin and circadian and cortisol and, and serotonin until like yep. several weeks and like 12 weeks six weeks depends right um of which at, hormone at best, yeah go ahead oh no i was gonna say at best yeah and they they usually cannot adapt to you know sleeping through the night until the earliest would be six months right and i'm glad you brought that up um because yeah there's no point in trying to get your baby to sleep through the night before that because they're not even developmentally able to even deal with anything like that but, yeah exactly yeah right yeah but huge part of this is that then your baby you are gonna switch to be to living on baby's time so yeah. the first six months the first three months for sure you are on their 24-hour clock to them, 3 a.m. and 3 p.m. is the same. And so it has to be for you. And then once they start getting into a circadian rhythm and having some stability, they tend, most most babies tend to be early risers. They tend to be morning people. So your wake up is going to be between 6 and 7, hmm? um, regardless of what type of night and how many times you woke up. Yep. So... Considering that that's going to be your new forced wake-up time that you can't really change, and sometimes it's 5 a.m., but <laughs> sometimes they get really <laughs> early. Um, I really want to underline that, like that importance, importance of trying to make your bedtime earlier, even it's a little hard, even if it's a little harder to do, like fighting with your body a bit more, because there's no way you're going to actually be able to sleep in. Yeah, that's exactly right, and in fact. You know, I would say expectant mothers would probably do themselves a service by if they typically do go to bed late and wake up late to start shifting their circadian clock well in advance of when the, the child is born. Um, that would probably help them adapt a, a little bit better. So um, for someone, for example, I, I, I tend to prefer to wake up at 8 a.m., which is when most people leave for work, I understand. <laughs> um, but for me, if I had to suddenly shift to a child waking up at 5 a.m., that would be very difficult. Mm. Um, but if you can get your body adapted before the child is born, that would probably make things a lot easier. Yeah, and I think it would be like that shift to prioritize your sleep and start maybe like what would that require, right? If your bedtime is going to be you can't go to bed at midnight anymore, you have to go to bed at nine. So how would you sw go to that shift and what other habits you can bring forth to help you sort of establish that, get into that rhythm of a 9 p.m., for example, or 10 p.m., whatever, bedtime so that you're up by six? Right. Excellent question. I think um, the, the standard that we assume is that you cannot shift for more than one hour per day. So obviously, if you normally go to bed at midnight, if you were to try randomly one day to go to bed at nine, your body would just laugh at you. <laughs> um, so I would try to do it gradually. And I wouldn't even try an hour a day because that's going to be difficult. I would try going to bed, you know, half hour um, earlier for a couple days and shift it back for another half an hour. Um, and that you know, by gradually adjusting to a time change, it'll make the transition a lot easier. The other thing you can do, and, and this, um, this is this something that people don't tend to tend to utilize, but is to use your environment and use the cues that your body recognizes as cues to when it should be awake or asleep. So, the biggest cue to our bodies to set our, our circadian rhythm is, of course, daylight. So luckily, it's summer, and we actually have sun, <laughs> at least in Michigan. Um, so a great thing you can do is um, when you wake up, you know, instead of, you know, sitting around and slowly drinking coffee, you know, go outside and expose yourself to bright light and sunlight, you know, as soon as you can. 
Um, and that's going to help to really shift your clock even stronger. And then at night, and this is where things get even more difficult, um, is you know, when you're getting ready to go to sleep, you know, ideally for a couple hours before you actually go to sleep, it's good to not expose yourself to bright light. So to try to stay off your computer and stay off your tablet and stay off your cell phone, anything that emits um, you know, a really bright light. Because what that's doing is it's telling your body that you know, the day is still going on. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and it's a really good habit to get into also for then later instilling in your kids because yeah. when you know, you babies you can't force babies to do stuff. But if once their circadian rhythm and their biological clocks start to establish, you can help strengthen it and have it work for you. That sounds yeah, that sounds amazing. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> if right. you get into that habit and like, you know, we are always talking about bedtime routines for babies. Set up your bedtime routine for yourself. <laughs> right, right. It's the whole learning by example, right? I mean, no one would, you know, eat, you know, terrible food every day in front of their children, right? Go to McDonald's every day in front of their children, right? They're going to eat healthy foods and lots of vegetables. But, it, you know, their, their, their sleep hygiene should be the same, right? Yeah. Yeah, Model yeah, yeah. the behavior you want the child to follow. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know we like, there's the world's so interesting. It's hard to shut it off. But. We will be happier when we do. Now, naps. What do we think about naps? How does that affect your sleep tank or your rhythms? Or like, what? What do you think about naps? Great question. Um, I'm going to answer it personally first because I am a big proponent of naps. (laughs) I love napping. Um, However, you should nap smartly <laughs> or wisely, I should say. Um, so if, for example, you, you have a night where you don't get enough sleep, and I'm guessing that most new parents have many of those, um, then a midday nap is a great idea. Now, I, I haven't read many studies looking at changes in physiology, and we actually haven't, haven't talked about any of those, and we should get to that, um, that accompany sleep deprivation, because I think the changes in the body can, can often be a little bit more shocking to people than, than the changes in, in neural function. But um, all of the studies, or, or there, I should say there are many studies looking at cognitive function in naps, um, and across the board they show you know, improvements after a nap. Um, so I think naps can be really restorative, um, and I think they can be um, a, a great way to recharge in the middle of the day. Now, the one thing you just have to be careful of, of course, is if you sleep you know, at, at certain times, um, you may impact your, your sleep on the subsequent night. So you know, there are a lot of different recommendations um, for how long a nap should be, and I think that you're – your listeners are in a very rare place in that they're probably getting way too little sleep at night. So I don't want to, I don't want to limit them to any (laughs) uh, duration of nap. Um, What I will say though, is that naps vary in their effectiveness based on when in the day they're taken. So um, the type of sleep that is most restorative to to people is um, called slow wave sleep. So it's stage three sleep. and the amount of stage three sleep you get is going to vary based on uh, based on when you fall asleep. So, for example, if you wake up even at 6 a.m. and you take a, a nap at 9 a.m., you're not going to get a lot of slow wave sleep. So the 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 idea is that you know as you remain awake, as you have more waking hours, you build up a need for sleep. So you can think of this just like hunger, right? The longer you've gone without eating, the more hungry you get. Um, so you build up this need for sleep, and the type of sleep you need specifically is slow wave sleep. So again, if you sleep at 10 o'clock in the morning, you won't get a lot of slow wave sleep. But if you wait until you know, 3 p.m., um, then you're going to get a lot more. So what conditions or what is required for you to be able to get that slow wave sleep? Oh, nothing. I mean, your your body, particularly if you're sleep deprived, your body wants to get there. So um, essentially, I'm sure you know a bit about sleep cycles. Um, so what a sleep cycle is, it simply just means that it's your, you cycle through the different stages of sleep. So initially when you fall asleep, you're in stage one sleep, which is that very light sleep. So if you've ever fallen asleep in a class, for example, or um, during a talk or something like that, then you're probably in stage one sleep. It's 
not very deep. It, it doesn't really do a whole lot for your body. Then you're going to enter into stage two sleep for a little while. Um, and then if you are, you know, if you're tired, if you're sleepy, if you've build up, built up this need for sleep by being awake for a long time, then you're going to go essentially right into slow wave sleep. So there's nothing you can do um, to make yourself get there faster uh, other than, of course, you know, have a good environment. Obviously, if you have a noisy environment, if it's too hot um, or something like that, then you're not going to go into that really deep stage. Mm-hmm. So then it is more of how, you know, how much how, how much debt you have in your sleep tank that is going to kind of your body propulse to get you to that wave three quicker. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. Which is part of a question I had because I wanted to know if if your body adapted to um to to less sleep like if if your the quality of sleep changed depending on how de- how deprived you were. Oh yes, it absolutely does. So um so your body will respond to what type of sleep loss you've endured. So um, oftentimes we, um, we think of when we, when we don't get enough sleep, um, what tends to happen is people get less REM sleep. So um, sleep stages are controlled um, by circadian influences um, as well as by need for sleep. So um, just trying to summarize this without <laughs> getting too wordy, but essentially if you if you have a normal night's sleep, we'll say 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, again, you've built up a lot of need for sleep. You've built up this homeostatic need to get slow-wave sleep. So most of that first part of your night, you know, from 11 a.m. or 11 p.m., excuse me, to 1 a.m., that's going to be spent primarily in slow-wave sleep. Right? Not, not entirely, but primarily. Um, but at the end of that sleep portion, right, so we'll say 5 to 7 a.m., is going to be spent primarily in REM sleep. Now, if, for example, you wake up early or earlier than you're expected to, um, you wake up at 5 a.m., then you're not going to get all the REM sleep that you need. So an average adult um, spends about a quarter of the night in REM sleep. Well, the next night, you're going to what's called rebound from that. So you're going to get significantly more REM earlier in the night than you would on a typical night. And the same would be true for slow-wave sleep. Um, So, you know, new parents may be in this situation where they do get woken up, you know, at midnight, even after they've just gone to bed at 11. Um, and so they may get interrupted in slow-wave sleep. But what, what tends to happen then is when they go back to sleep, they're going to still, again, get that slow-wave sleep because they've built up this need for it. And so they still may end up, you know, being interrupted in their, in their REM period as well. Mm. And I think that is a great thing to know because usually we think that sleep cycles, like for adults, tend to be, what, 90 minutes roughly? Yep, like roughly, a full yep. cycle. Right. But you're never going to get that with a newborn in, in one sitting, oh. pretty much. Like it's really rare because babies, newborn sleep, so they they're, you're at the mercy of their tummy, which needs to be refilled roughly continuously at, you know, oh. at about two every two to three hours at the very least. Um and that includes the feeding and that includes you putting, you know, the going to sleep and everything. Like it's every two to three hours, feed me again. So oh <laughs> Kim's never having kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is a great opportunity for you to figure out the solutions and, and research it and go deep into it so that like all parents everywhere would just like buy all your books. Yes. <laughs> Um, so every two to three hours, right? So it means that like, and and you're sleeping in somewhere in there. So if you get, unless you do shifts and you have, you have to coordinate with say, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, take a shift and then have the partner or whoever's helping you out, bring the baby just for the feeding and then take baby away again so that you get the least amount of waking in that in order to get you two, three, four hours of sleep without interruption or else you're doing like interrupting every two to three hours. But to me, it's great to know that your body's going to prioritize what you need at that moment. So it's not going to go like, oop, the cycle's busted. Now we got to start all over again. Oop, we didn't make it again. Oop, nope, not again. And, and just have that torture of never being able to go through your cycle for weeks on end. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, so that it does get a little more complicated than that too because um, there are lots of things that change in your brain while you're sleeping. So um, different sleep stages are associated with um, the release of different neurotransmitters, for example. And then there's also endocrine changes that happen during sleep. Um, and some of the endocrine or some of the hormones that are released are released based on which stage of sleep you're in, and some are released based on what you know what the circadian time is in your biological clock. So there's all of these systems that work together. And in humans, they work together in one consolidated bout of sleep of, you know, roughly seven to eight hours. Um, so even though you may be getting the same sleep stages, there's all these other physiological things that are maybe misaligned if you, mm-hmm. you know, are woken up every two or three hours. So, I mean, it's no wonder that parents are so exhausted all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us around, I love this, back to the changes in physiology. So we're going to talk about that, but we have to take a quick break first, and then we'll jump right into that. Okay, sounds great. If you're expecting, you may not know this yet, but ideally for the first weeks after your baby is born, you should be spending a lot of time doing nothing but taking care of baby and yourself, preferably in bed. After baby arrives, you'll be feeding at all hours, taking in naps whenever you can, and hopefully doing a lot of skin-to-skin time. Your bedroom will become your home base. But let's be honest, how comfortable is your bed right now? Right? You know what's really comfortable? A reverie power bed. I'm loving mine so much, I longingly look at it every time I walk by my room. And that's quite a temptation because I work from home. A Reverie Power Bed is an affordable way to invest in better sleep and even a better postpartum. Go check out what they're all about at momsneedsleep.com slash birthful. With prices starting at $7.99 for a queen size and retailer financing that can bring that down to as little as $20 per month, a Reverie Power Bed is totally worth it. Go to momsneedsleep.com slash birthful to learn more. And don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who got you there. And we're back. So now we're going to talk about, you know, what, what are those changes in physiology that we talked about the changes in neurofunction. So changes of physiology in not being able to get your full amount of needed sleep. Yeah. So um, I have more bad news. <laughs> I guess I should probably start by saying. Um, so there are lots of changes in physiology. So um, one of the really consistent findings is that when people are sleep deprived or, or have too little sleep, um, they show a reduction in immune function, which is probably not terribly surprising. You know, we've probably all experienced um, periods of time when you know, you're maybe more stressed at work and you're not sleeping as much and you're more likely, even just anecdotally, you notice that you're more likely to develop a cold at that time or something like that. Um, They also have found a lot of relationships with um, sleep duration and cardiovascular disease and hypertension. Um, So there are some pretty major things. Um, But I think sort of one of the more, or one of, in my mind, um, more interesting things that's been emerging in the literature over the last 10 or 15 years is changes in um, eating behavior and glucose metabolism. So um, your body has two hormones that it secretes um, as part of eating behavior, uh, leptin and ghrelin. Um, So leptin is a hormone that's secreted when you have a feeling of satiety, so when you feel full. And ghrelin um, is a hormone that's secreted to let you know that you're hungry. Well, um, when when people are sleep-deprived or um, have too little sleep, um, what's been found is they have a reduction in leptin, so a reduced... um, um, output of the, the hormone that tells you that you're full, and an increase um, in ghrelin. So they're more hungry and they feel less full. And um, it turns out that um, a lot of times they show glucose uh, or impaired glucose tolerance. So their insulin response um, is more similar to that of someone in a, in a pre-diabetic state. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it gets even worse, <laughs> which is that when people are sleep deprived, they tend to to eat more, right, which is not surprising given these endocrine results, right? So they tend to show increased uh, caloric intake, you know, primarily fats, you know, carbohydrates and that sort of thing. So, um, and there's even been work to, to show that um, the reward signal from food is stronger when people are sleep deprived. Um, 
So <laughs> um, not only do you have these maybe more you know, damaging things happening to your immune function and cardiovascular health, um, but it's also changing the way you process food. So it, it's sort of, you know, like everything – Everything that's been studied, I think, has been shown to, to change under conditions of sleep deprivation. Right, which is oh, and super rough because you're not only so, like you said, you're hungrier. Your body's telling you you're hungrier. It's taking longer to tell you when you're full, and <laughs> and getting you better reward from food. But also, <laughs> you talked about like how our neuro functions is, are impaired. It's harder to like. <laughs> Have good judgment. So it's even true. though your body's telling you, yeah, you're hungrier, you're not going for that apple. You're going for the no. donut and the, the box of donuts. Yes, impulsive behavior increases with sleep deprivation. You're absolutely right. So to me, that's another reason to prioritize your sleep. Because if you do get better sleep, then you're, you're actually better supporting your nutrition. Absolutely. Yes. And your body's ability to utilize the resources you give it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And not be looking to for food to fulfill your energy because you didn't get it. You know, you're not rested. So it's trying to figure out how to get energy somehow. Um, right. Yeah. Oh. Now, great. The bearer of good news here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, this we need to hear this. We need to hear this. I had a question about quantity of sleep versus quality of sleep. Is can you tweak a difference and what has more impact? Like so considering that new parents are not going to get big quantities, how can they make the most in terms of of, of the little sleep that they're getting? Can they improve the quality of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I, I I think that there's a lot of things they can do given that a lot of them will be you know, sleeping periodically throughout the day. So um, your sleeping environment actually has a really big impact on how well you sleep. Um, and in terms of, you know, sleep efficiency, um, wakening after sleep, you know, ideally if you have an hour and a half to sleep um, and you've been up periodically throughout the night, you know, you want to sleep for that full 90 minutes. You don't want to sleep for 30 minutes, you know, wake up for 10, fall back, right? You want one as strong and consolidated bout as you can. Mm -hmm. And if this is happening during the day, that can be difficult to do because it's so bright out. Right? So I think having a really good sleeping environment is, would be really important. So, uh, and by good sleeping environment, we want it to be you know, as dark as possible. It needs to be cool. Um, so you know, 68, 66 degrees is ideal. Um, and it needs to either be quiet or have some level of background noise that the person likes. Right? And by background noise, I, of course, mean like a noise machine that has, you know, something real repetitive like waves or rain, not the TV, not a radio. Um, because, of course, on a TV and a radio, even though a lot of people I know like to fall asleep to these things, um, periodic changes in what happens on those systems can wake you up um, and, and do tend to wake people up, right? So you're you go to sleep watching the news, for example, and then after the news, there's some, you know, movie with a car chase, right? You can imagine, like, the, the loud noise and the scary noises that are going to potentially wake you up. So, ideally, cool, dark, um, and either very quiet or with some sort of really monotonous noise in the background. Mm -hmm. And then, how about, like, I'm sure getting, being, being able to be in, in, in a place that's comfortable, also yeah. can help, like a good pillow, a good bed, good blankets, good, I don't know. Absolutely, yes. Like don't fall asleep on the sofa. Yeah. That's not good for <laughs> your posture. Chiropractors would tell you that's not where you want to <laughs> fall asleep, regardless of the nap. Like go nap in your bed. <laughs> right, exactly. And maybe that means you need to have, you know, uh, depending on you know, what your setup is in your house, maybe you need to have a smaller place for your child to sleep in your room with you. Or, you know, if you've got the baby monitors, maybe that's okay too. 
whatever you obviously just need to be able to wake up to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've seen every (laughs) configuration possible. Parents get really creative. And during those first few months, it's not unusual to have like a mattress in baby's room and you sleep there or you're in the guest room and, you know, your partner's in your room or vice versa, because one of you has to get good sleep and the other one can be more attuned to baby. Um, Things like that. Yeah, no, it gets really creative because you do whatever you need to do. Yeah, I can totally imagine. <laughs> but I like, I do like these recommendations because these are the same recommendations that we talk about for newborns to help and, and babies to help them get good sleep habits and make it dark, make it quiet or white noise, make it boring. Like let them know that even though they're waking up tons of times at night, that from whatever 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., like nights for sleeping. So. Yep. You're not going to engage. You're going to pretend it's night and make all the environment like it's night, even though they're waking up. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Yeah. Mm. So use that for you, too. Yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> and all these things you can start applying while pregnancy so that by the time baby arrives, you're already your body's already used to a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, because sleep during pregnancy, I know, is can be difficult. I don't know a lot about it, but I know, you know a lot of women complain about you know, being really uncomfortable and waking up a lot and, you know, needing to wake up and use the restroom more often and that sort of thing can be really disruptive, I think, too. Mm-hmm. So you can get into this as well before, yeah. you know, even before a baby arrives, yeah. get used to like creating those good, good sleep environment, good sleep associations, nice bedtime, and then, you know, establish those good sleeping habits so that you're ready for, to make the most of it <laughs> for yeah. baby yeah, arrives. Right. So you're ready. It's true. I mean, I, I do think, um, and this is purely anecdotal evidence just because I have, you know, friends and a sister who have children. Um, you know, we spend, or in general, people spend so much time preparing everything for the baby, but it doesn't seem like they spend a whole lot of time preparing, you know, for their their future life with a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I can see why, obviously, you know, you know, they're being altruistic and they're getting ready for their new child, but should also, you know, spend a little time, I think, probably preparing what, what their life is going to be like after this, you know, very major event. Oh, yeah. You're preaching to the choir. I have postpartum preparation <laughs> online classes. Little plug. Oh, no way. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> where we talk sec- exactly about that. Because we prepare, and, and not even just preparing for a baby. We, we very much do a lot of preparing for birth, to have a birth. And not even to have a baby, like life with baby and what that does to us and our changes and our relationship. Like we don't go deeper into that. So, yeah, I am all about that one. Yeah. 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 So one of the things and I mentioned this earlier, one of the things that I suggest to parents that is a good way to maximize that little sleep you have is to divide and conquer and figure out about doing shifts where like one parent may take full on baby duties from, say, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then the other parent takes 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And, you know, if if you are if, if mom is exclusively breastfeeding, then that can continue, but the, the baby's just brought to her and one baby's hungry and she's not even much woken up. And then, so, you know, to maximize that chunk of sleep. My question there is, what, based on these physiological changes and needs that you talked about, for the mom, or, or I'm going to prioritize the mom here, for the mom, <laughs> would it be better to do take the 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. shift or the 1 a.m. to 5 a.m.? Yeah, like, physiologically, is it better to sleep 9 to 1 or 1 to 5? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I would say, of course, you know, we think that the most restorative sleep, again, is slow-wave sleep, and that's the sleep you're going to get, you know, fairly soon after you fall asleep at night. So based on that, I would say the nine, the earlier shift, assuming that the mom can go to sleep at 9 p.m., that would probably be the better time to get a real consolidated four hours of sleep. That mm-hmm. would be my recommendation. Even if, so it, that, like your body will respond differently if you've been up all day and go to bed at nine, and, or if you've been up all day, well, you will have not. Hopefully you will have had some naps. But say if you're up all night and then go to bed at one, that you might not jump into that slow wave as, as much. Oh, I see. I, okay. So I'm sorry. I, I misinterpreted your, 
your um, example. Right. I thought that she would be sleeping at nine, but waking up to take care of the child. Nope. But staying up till one, I think that that's fine too. So yeah, so if she's just going to stay awake right until one and then go to sleep and then not, and then have uninterrupted sleep. I think that that would actually be fine too. So it would make no difference. Just as I don't long... think so. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I think it would be, I think she would feel worse um, subjectively, uh, emotionally, everything. Um, if she went to bed at nine and then was repeatedly woken up until one, <laughs> but if she waited, I think, yeah, I think they'll probably be pretty similar. So you're saying it would be better to even like, so, so say this scenario, let's try this scenario <laughs> <laughs> that dad's taking the nine to one shift. So meaning he's going to sleep nine to one or partner's going to sleep. They're going to sleep nine to one. And mom's going to definitely sleep one to five. So in terms of who's got, who's on baby duty, mom's got baby duty from nine to one. And then the partner's on baby duty from one to five. Mm-hmm. But during the nine to one part where mom's on baby duty, she has the ability or the option to take some quick naps here and there, but will have her big chunk of sleep from one to five. Is it better for her to take advantages of those little micro sleeps here and there, or is it better to just suck it up and be awake and then go down at one? Yeah, I I would say that if mom has her option, and she gets tired at nine, she should definitely sleep from nine to one. Um, because the problem, of course, is if she's really tired and she's, you know, been awake since 6 a.m., then if she tries to take these, you know, short little naps between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., um, she's going to pretty quickly get into slow-wave sleep, and it's really difficult to wake up from slow-wave sleep. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's harder to wake up, and it's harder to recover from sleep inertia. So um, sleep inertia is the phenomenon that everyone has experienced, right? It's the idea that when you wake up, you know, you're not quite awake, right? You're awake, your alarm, you turned your alarm off, but like, you know, just, you know, um, subjectively you feel kind of fuzzy, right? Like you're, you know, you're not thinking at your best. You're not um, at your strongest. You know, if I asked you to do a bunch of math problems, you wouldn't do it as well. Um, so sleep inertia can last, you know, anywhere from, you know, zero minutes, you know, to a couple hours. And it tends to be the most severe if you wake up from slow wave sleep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, and we've all felt that. That's painful. It is yeah. physically painful to wake <laughs> up during that time to go, like, take care of your child. But, so I, I understand, so if she has the option to take the nine, you know, go to sleep, sleep nine to one versus the one to five and she's more tired at 9 p.m. to take that solid nine to one but mm-hmm. my question is if the if they're taking shifts and nine to one is not her shift she will not be okay. she's on baby duty nine to one her mm-hmm. sleep will come one to five mm-hmm. so the recommendation there is to really try not to even take some micro naps in that nine to one, if even if she has the ability to, because it's gonna it's gonna be harder to wake up from those micro naps because her body is gonna want to go into deep slow wave sleep, and it's best to just try to stay awake until one until one a.m. when she can get her full four hours of sleep and then maybe make sure that she's getting some naps during the day so that she can last until that one a.m. without totally passing out yeah yeah that still sounds pretty miserable to me but um but I do think that I mean, I think it'll be hard hard for her to wake up um, if she does fall asleep between the nine to one. Um, at the at the same time, though, if she's not able to nap enough during the day, and it's the choices between you know sleeping those four hours from one to five, or those four hours from one to five, and a couple of half an hour naps at nine between nine and one, I think she's got to go for the nap. All right, so go for whatever <laughs> you can get whenever you can get it. Yeah, just know that it's going to be miserable waking up. <laughs> and it is. We've experienced it. I my, <laughs> we only have one child because my husband clearly recalls that how painful <laughs> that is. <laughs> 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 this is the truth. It's the truth. Um, 
I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you. That no, no, no. You can laugh. You can laugh. I awful. <laughs> uh, now, but see, like I know a lot more things now that I didn't know then. So I would do things differently, and I would know that it can be this hard. And so, therefore, I would prioritize my sleep and work on shifts, which we didn't do, and make sure I got naps during the day, and you know, brought in extra helpers to watch baby while I got a solid two hours sleep instead of trying to sleep while keeping an eye an, an ear you know listening to baby which yeah. is way more difficult so like actually plan for it and understand what you what is coming towards you what you're going to be faced with and, and and knowing that it's inevitable so actually make the mess the best you can about it with it yeah i yeah i think that's a great idea and there are some things that you know, mothers can do too to work with their own body. So, um, you know, you mentioned bringing someone in for a couple hours for a nap. Well, there are certain times of the day that people are more able to sleep, right? So in your circadian cycle, you have essentially peaks and valleys. Um, so the lowest point, the, the nadir of the cycle um, is going to be early in the morning, you know, usually 4 to 6 a.m., depending on, you know, your actual cycle. But there's also a little dip in the afternoon, so people often attribute this to the, the after-lunch dip, right? It's like, oh, I had too big of a lunch, I'm getting sleepy. Um, but it's actually your internal rhythm that, that, that goes down. And when I say it goes down, I mean like your heart rate um, gets slower, your respiration gets slower, your body temperature dips a little bit. And that's a really good time for mothers to take a nap. Um, so this is usually between 2 and 4 in the afternoon, just, again, depending on your own cycle. And so if they can figure out where their little afternoon dip is, they can really, I think, um, um, use that to their advantage. Mm-hmm. And it's a great idea to try to take nap with baby at that time. If you can get baby to start adjusting, making that their nap time, right? Then yeah. like get baby to nap when you are most tired so you can also nap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds perfect. It's a fun trick. Doesn't always work. <laughs> Doesn't always work, right. but it's a fun trick. Kim... <laughs> I love that recommendation. What other what other things um, do you think would be helpful to to new moms during that period? Um, I mean, I think probably the the best advice is just to take advantages when they have them. Um, again, like you said, you know, because the child you know really can't develop. Uh, it doesn't have a you know a, a circadian system really that's you know able to allow them to even sleep through the night until they're you know six months of age. Um, it just means that the first you know four to six months are going to be pretty pretty variable. And of course, you know I, I, I'm sure you've probably talked about this on, on your show before, but um, you know the National Sleep Foundation has different recommendations for how long people should sleep based on age. And so newborns do sleep a lot, right? So I think new moms could take advantage of a lot of that. So um, the, the NSF or the National Sleep Foundation, you know, recommends that they sleep, you know, 14 to 17 hours. So, you know, obviously every child is different. Um, if it's, you know, if your child's sleeping less than 11 hours, then you should probably see a doctor or, you know, over 19 or 20, you should definitely also see a doctor. Um, but, you know, within that window, that's a, that's a lot of time that, you know, could be taken advantage of um, to sleep. And obviously, you know, new parents have lots of other um, responsibilities <laughs> associated with their child and potentially other children and potentially work. Um, but um, it does mean that th th there is time for naps. And so, yeah, so to the extent that they can get their child to nap at a time that's convenient and, and works with their own body, I think that that would be, you know, ideal. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, huge, huge. And I think I hear a lot of times from new moms say or pregnant moms saying, but I'm not a napper. It's like in the back of my head, I go, yeah, you will be because yeah. <laughs> your body's going to be so tired that if you were to lay down and even and that's not completely fair, like it's, your mind can be racing and, 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 and all over the place. So it's hard to quiet it down. But even if you like and, and correct me if I'm wrong, even if you lie down, even if you don't fall asleep, just trying to shut down and maybe do a meditation practice or something where you just give your body some rest, that's going to make a difference. Yeah. No, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, your body needs rest. And what you may find is, you know, the first couple times you try that, you're not able to sleep. But once, you know, you, you put this restriction on yourself, so let's say the baby goes down for a nap at 2 p.m., and you tell yourself you're going to get into bed until your baby wakes up. You know, the first couple of times, I think you're right. You may, maybe your mind is racing. You're worrying about all the things you have to do and get accomplished and all that kind of stuff. But if you know you can't leave that bed until your baby wakes up, then eventually, you know, you're going to figure it out. And, and I think, you know, you'll adapt. Um, and since you can't go do those things anyway, um, eventually, my guess is you will be able to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yay for sleep. <laughs> I'm ready for a nap now. I know. It's like, when is that afternoon nap coming or dip coming? Right? Wow. Fantastic. There's nothing wrong with naps. Everyone, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people think that it's, I don't know, it's, it's, an, it's a weakness. It's not a weakness. No, because you're actually sharpening your body and your mind. Like if you're sleep deprived, you're the, the I, I know there's been some studies that have compared the your functioning abilities uh, to be equal as that of being drunk. Exactly. You know, absolutely. And, and oftentimes it, it can be worse because you don't realize how impaired you are. You know, I think that people who have a low level of intoxication know that, you know, they shouldn't be driving a car and they shouldn't be doing these things. And so they pay more attention. But when you are really exhausted, you don't realize it's, you know, it's not as well advertised or it's not as well discussed in the media. So people don't realize that they're impaired. Yeah. And then you're driving around children in the back. Oh, goodness. Right? Because that's what you're doing. So... I think bring it in, and this is not to scare people. It's to say, look, this is the reality. Please take your nap. Right. Right. And even just being aware of how impaired you could be do, you know, exclusively because of sleep loss, I think that that's useful too because if you do have to drive your children around and you realize you only slept four hours the night before, if you know <laughs> that you're probably impaired, then at least you will um, maybe pay a little more attention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or enlist somebody or make sure you're not falling, you know, you're not falling asleep on the right. wheel and 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 make sure you 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 are awake as while doing this. Yeah, that makes sense. No. Napping of course is better, but Napping is ab- getting sleep is better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Now, this is a recommendation that I usually tell my um, expectant parents, and I think from all we talked today, it is confirmed and valid. And I can't remember, I think I got it at one of my trainings that they said this was a good recommendation and it made total sense to me. But I always tell them, like, think of what would make you happy pre-pregnancy, pre-baby, as like what you consider a good night sleep. If it was five hours, six hours, six, well, for not five hours, but it was seven hours, eight hours, nine hours. Yeah. Um. And then once baby arrive, know that you're not going to get anywhere near that in one sitting, but try to see if you can count up to that in a 24-hour period. So it kind of gives you a goal to say, okay, I'm going to do it in little naps, and I got two hours here, and I got you know an hour and a half there, and another hour here, and I roughly interrupted, but altogether in 24 hours, I did manage to get my seven hours. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation because at the very least, too, um, then people are monitoring how much they're sleeping. Right? So, you know, it'd be easy to it's easy to know that you didn't sleep as much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing exactly how much you sleep is it's really hard um, to evaluate that subjectively. And you know, studies have shown this: people don't have an accurate idea of how much they sleep in general. So, I think starting early and figuring out what the optimal amount is for you, right? Again, you know, some people it's eight hours, some people it's only seven. Um, you know, for some people it's it's less than seven, but not that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just try to build it up. And of course, you know, if you get seven hours in one consolidated bout versus seven hours across a 24-hour period, it's not the same. It's not going to feel as good. You're still going to be tired, um, but at least you're you're closer to that. Yeah. And and you know, you might even want to recommend that people try to get one hour more, again, because it's interrupted and, you know, you're going to likely spend more time, you know, getting into the stages you want to get into than you might otherwise if you had those eight hours together. Mm. So, you know, if seven hours is your tip, your perfect night, you know, pre-pregnancy, um, you know, best case scenario, then try to get eight hours in a 24-hour period. 
deal. I'm going to be telling them now. <laughs> and now I have like, I spoke to sleep consult to a sleep expert researcher Kim Fenn, and she told me. <laughs> Everyone should sleep more. <laughs> yes, Kim. If people want to like get in contact with you, follow what you do, read up on on your research, how can they do that? Oh, yeah. Um, well, they can email me at uh, kfenn at msu.edu, um, or they could um, check out my website, which is psychology.msu.edu slash sleeplab. Or maybe that's a backslash. I don't know which one is which. The one that's under the question mark, backslash. We will Front link slash? it. I think that's a backslash. <laughs> okay, perfect. We will link it on the show notes, people. You're going to have to go to the show notes for the email. <laughs> For the for the website, <laughs> or just Google Kim Fun, she'll come up. Yeah, that's also probably the easiest way. Yeah, and it's two N's, F E N N. Correct. Yeah, Kim, thank you so so much for this fun talk today. Um, we were like the funny bearer of bad news, but hopefully people <laughs> all sleep more. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a delight. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts, and if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. And if you're a birth professional, go to birthful.com slash workshop to find out more about my rethinking prenatal workshop that is coming up on June 24th. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Reverie Powerbeds. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>